Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Hello, dear brothers and sisters. That was a snow. That was the first time in any winter since I moved here in 92 that I have been happy. I can't stand Bloomington winters. It never is cold and the snow never lasts. And that's like every day in Wisconsin in winter this last week. It's like, yes, snow, cold. I loved it. And we made a lot of money over in Hyde Park. Blowing snow. We got worker horses over here and... Raise your hand, Nathan. Did you work hard this week? Both for Andrew Henry and for me. Can you imagine having to work for Tim Bailey and Andrew Henry? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so we're in Romans 9, and Romans 9 is an arbitrary thing because it's a long letter, and so that's the way we refer to particular sections. And this is Romans 9. And you know that for a number of weeks now, what we've been dealing with is the issue of predestination, election, God's decrees, God's choice. Okay? What I want you to understand, though, is all the discussion about God's choice, about him calling some and not others, about him making some vessels of honor and others vessels for dishonor, all that discussion is in a larger section that deals with what? Well, here's what it deals with. So if we go back to verse 1 of chapter 9, this is what preceded the discussion of predestination. And now where we are this week is what comes after. And the beginning and the end actually are the same, and it's the discussion of predestination in the middle that is helping to fill out the beginning and the end, okay? So here's what came before. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I'm telling the truth. You know how Jesus says, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, okay? And what he means by that is, don't be yes and no. You remember how the Apostle Paul says, was I yes and no and no and yes to you? No, I was, in other words, was I saying two different things. Well, the Apostle Paul here is very clear. He says this, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is the truth. Now, what's the truth? All he's saying is this is the truth. Then he says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I'm telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I have great sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So what's going on at the beginning is that the Apostle Paul is saying, we have a problem, and the problem is that the Israelites have not turned to their Messiah. We have a problem. The Jews have not given themselves 
to Jesus Christ. <coughs> you see this? I, I tell you the truth, I would be willing to be accursed if they would simply, my kinsmen, according, if they would give themselves to Jesus Christ. Okay? And then he says, verse 4, who are the Israelites? Okay? They are the Israelites. And then he says, what does that mean? He says, to whom belongs the adoption of sons? And the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ? According to the flesh who is over all, God bless forever, amen. And so this is how this chapter starts. He says, listen, I'm telling you the truth. I would be willing to be damned if I could simply turn my people, according to the flesh, my kinsmen, to Jesus. They are the ones that got the promise. They're the descendants of the patriarchs. From them came Jesus, according to the flesh. He was a descendant of David. Then, in verse 6, he starts in, and you know how I've kept saying to you that he's dealing with objections. And so then in verse 6 comes the first objection, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Okay, does this make sense? I tell you the truth, I would be willing to be damned if I could somehow take my people and have them believe in Jesus. But it's not as if the word of God has failed. Not all Israel is Israel. And not all the descendants of the flesh are children of the promise. Now listen. He then goes into a discussion of predestination. And the purpose of the discussion of predestination is to say that even though our perception is that God is not keeping his word, God is unfair, God is this, God is that, God is the other thing, right? God is sovereign. God makes distinctions. God chooses. Do you see this? He's showing himself really attuned to the lack of credibility he has. I tell you the truth. I am not lying. My conscience, you know. I would give myself. Right? He's putting himself on display emotionally. Okay? And then he trots out predestination. (laughs) It's like... You know, the, the image of, 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 of this intense wind blowing at you and your hair is straight back, you know. He goes from all this emotive, sort of emotional, personal, and then it's like, God, I'll be God! What's your problem? This is always the way God has been. Listen, I myself, if it were up to me, But God is God. Do you see this? This is what's going on in this chapter, okay? 
And now we come to the end, and at the end, he returns to the theme of the fact that Israel is not Israel. Does this make sense to you? He starts with the fact that Israel has not come to their Messiah, and now he's going to end with the fact that Israel has not come to their Messiah. And predestination is just sort of a a subordinate clause, you know, a a lower uh, backdrop to the central issue, the central scandal, which is that Israel is not Israel. The children of the flesh are not children of the promise. So let's hear the word of God as it's recorded where this week's text is, and I'm going to include the last verse from last week, which is verse 23, and read through verse 26. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. He's speaking of God, and he says, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. See, he's still dealing with this issue, the scandal that God chooses some and not others, and that that choice is not conterminous. It is not identical with membership in the Jewish nation, nation of Israel. Us, verse 24, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here. Be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, the text begins, uh, could you put it up, please? Do you see the word even as in italics? That means it's not in the original. So in the Greek, the word even doesn't occur. And so I'm going to read it, and I'm just going to say, us whom... He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, if you read that naturally, you're going to think that when he uses the word us, he's referring to himself as a Gentile. I know he's not a, Gen- he's not a Gentile, he's a Jew, right? But look at how it works. Us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews. And it just feels like us, not Jews, right? It, And so the word also occurs twice in the text, and it makes you feel as if the Apostle Paul is kind of copying a posture as being a Gentile. But if you read it carefully, you see he's not doing that. Us whom he also called, not from among Jews only. And so the word only gives you back the fact that, yeah, I am a a Jew, but can you see how does that word us function? If you were to use a word to describe how us functions there, what word would you use to describe it? Okay. Let me, let me, let me, let me take a little aside. Okay. So there is a white man 
And the white man has a plantation. And his plantation is south of the Mason-Dixon line. And the guns are fired in Fort Sumter. And the unpleasantness starts. Namely, the Civil War. And the South is determined that they are going to defend their rights. Right? And the North is determined, well, it's hard to say. But let's put a good construction on it. The North is going to uh, liberate the slaves. Okay? So the Civil War has started... And this white man who owns a plantation goes to his black slaves, are you with me? And he says, we, (laughs) we are going to go north and engage the enemy. And his black slaves say what to him? Precisely. They say, what's this we, white man? Now think about that. The use of the plural first person, we and us, is often a very political communication, isn't it? And... When you have a minority and a majority, and the majority speaks inclusively of some who are in the minority, using the word we and us, it's referred to as what? It's referred to as the imperial we. It is a way of the oppressor speaking for the oppressed in a way that doesn't give the oppressed any choice in the matter. Are you with me? And so we're very attuned to this. We're like, what's this we, white man? And so if you are Asian in America, or if you are an American in Asia, if you're black, if you're white, if you're Jewish, if you're Gentile, everywhere we go today, we're engaged in the politics of identity. Identity politics, okay? And we are very very precisely slicing and dicing who we are and who you are and how we and you and I fit together. And that is 99.99% of social media today. That's it. You know, should unborn babies be we? Or should it be I? (laughs) You know, should we be able to take their lives because we're able to do so. It's identity politics. My, my body, myself, you know, I have the right to do what I want with my body, and I define out of existence the one in my womb. Now, that's pretty straightforward in a conservative church today. But now let's move to black and white or to Asian or to something else like that. An awful lot of the communication between people the last 30 or 40 years has been about the issue 
of distinctions. And so you've got racial distinctions of skin color, you've got ethnicity, you have language, you have taste in art, you have religion, you have, um, I don't know if, I don't know if you're aware of it, because I think you have to be sophisticated like me to be aware of it. But, you know, a lot of people are concerned about sexuality. It was a joke. I mean, can you imagine how much of our communication today is about the nature of sexual identity? I mean, come on, people, wake up. Humongous amount. I've gotten to the point where I don't think it's possible for there to be any mass communication on any level that says anything true about sexuality. It's like our whole Western world is addicted to lies. There is no truth. It's only lies. And if you don't believe me, you just get me to watch or read anything you watch and read during the week. Have me sit next to you and all of a sudden your hair will stand on end. I won't even have to open my mouth. All of a sudden you'll see it different. And then you've got all these ads of some, and it's always white people, it's never a black person. You got all these ads of, of, of some, and it's typically a woman, you know, who's like adopted a dog. You know, and she's cuddling up to her dog, you know, and, and then the, the, the message says, you know, do you care about these people or do you just care about your people? And they don't say people, but that's what they mean. They're really trying to get you to think of a dog as being a person. Right? Right? And so, on South Walnut across from Kroger, our babies you're to kill, but you you keep going down South Walnut, and there are babies you should adopt at the animal shelter. (laughs) So, years ago, we had a woman in this church who was, uh, uh, shall we say, not the healthiest emotionally. One year we got her Christmas card. And her Christmas card was her face, and right next to it, shoved up against it, was her dog. And that was her Christmas card. So do you know what I did? I took a, a Sharpie. And I blacked out the dog's face. Now, why did I do that? Well, because what that woman was doing was trying consciously to blur the distinction between the species that God has placed his image in and the species that God has told us we may eat. I mean, come on, wake up. This is a huge issue in our culture where our culture claims that they love animals, and they don't say it, but that Christians hate animals. That somebody who's a vegan loves animals, but somebody that eats animals hates animals. And that if you are fully enlightened and progressive, you will adopt animals. Not ants! Animals that have some sort of emotive capacity that you might think they're liking you. So cats are 
<laughs> you know, cats are just a little bit maybe dicey, but dogs, especially, especially. Not the little rat think dogs. It's hard to see yourself in a rat think dog. And, right? Now, here's my point. The Apostle Paul is dealing with identity politics. He is talking about Jews and Gentiles. He is showing the fact that, that God has called to himself and given faith and chosen many Gentiles and only few Jews. And this is true in our church. We've got, well, now only two. We've got Bob, we've got Daniel. There's Daniel. You can't see he's a Jew, but if he took his mask off, take your mask off. (laughs) See, he's got that nose. All right. Listen, what really is at stake in Romans 9 is who has the right to make distinctions. God or man? Who has the right to make distinctions? God or man? Who has the right to make choices? God or man? Who has the right to make a woman and a man, God or man. An awful lot of the discussion of sex today is man saying that he's going to turn sexuality, instead of bifurcating it, instead of having it be dualist, which is how God made it, Jesus says from the beginning they were male and female, man is determined to turn it into the points on a compass. Where you've got male, north, or female, north, I don't give a rip, flip it upside down. And then you've got male, 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 female, and then male, male, female, and then male, female, and then, and then female, female, male, and then male, female, fe- fe- you know, all around the compass. You've got all these different places that you can stand. And depending on your predilections, depending on your, your choices, your nuances, your desires, your whatever you want to call it, you will choose a place on that compass to stand that you're comfortable with. And what's ironic is that an awful lot of the literature will tell you that once you've made that choice, it's firm. And yet studies show that a ton, the majority of people who identify as female, even though God made them male when they're late adolescents, by the time they're 23, guess what? They'll have reverted to form. And yet the world tells you that if you're gay, you're gay. And that's it. You know, sexual dysphoria is permanent. But of course, the studies show that it's amorphous. The studies show that gay men sleep with women all the time. God's distinctions will out. God 
is not worried about what you think about his distinctions, actually. God makes us male and female. God makes us Jew and Greek. God makes us animal to be eaten or man to eat animal. And only man has the image of God. These are absolutely set in concrete. There is no variation, and we can, we can beat our heads against it all we want, our whole lives. We can engage in all the hypocrisy on social media. We can entertain ourselves endlessly with woman, women whooping up on men. It's all entertainment is anymore, is one more woman whooping up on one more man. We can suspend our disbelief. I mean, it's insane. I have watched this develop from when I was a young man. I've watched it. And at first, it was just these magazines at the supermarket. Whoever heard of magazines today? And the magazines had these, like, women bodybuilders. I'd see these pictures. I'd think, are you serious? It was like 45 years ago. And I keep watching, and you people keep being entertained by it. And it's utterly ridiculous. You know, I keep asking Mary Lee Lover, can I get you a set of weights, please? So before I went and preached in the first service, I was back in the kitchen, and I just noticed this. I'd never noticed this before. Who on earth did that? You're actually the one that did it? Oh, for the play. That's right. That's what they said in the first time. So so we want to be bombastic with opera and plays. Right? Over the top. But was this for the men or the women? Now listen, what's my point? My point is that identity politics turns everybody into a hypocrite. I noticed this about 25 years ago when I went to an opera, and the opera had Curtis singing the bleep part. And it was what they call opera buffet or buffa or what's it called? Opera buffa. So it's just this ridiculous puff piece, right? Is that what? I don't remember what it was. But where I was ministering at the time, I was surrounded by homosexuality. Okay? I was counseling. I was was working hard to restore male and female as a pastor, a minister of the gospel. And I go to this play over at IU. And here's all all these butch women and gay men playing absolutely perfectly the 
typical male and female parts. <laughs> you know, it was hilarious to me. You know, that you had people in their lives were just as twisted as twisted could be. But when it came to entertainment, it was the entire opera. And of course, that was because the opera, I don't remember which one it was, but it was an old one. Do you remember which one it was? Don Pasquale. And when would that have been written? 1800s. And the irony of it, are you with me? of seeing us needing our entertainment to restore some sort, some semblance of God's distinctions for us to laugh. And yet when it comes to every place else, it's willy-nilly all over the place, and we just will be danged if we will ever allow God to make the distinctions. Are you with me? And so if God says that you're male and female, to heck with it. If God says that animals aren't people, to heck with it. If God says he chooses some and not others, to heck with it. We're so full of ourselves. We are so confident that we know better than God. You with me? As a matter of fact, we're so confident that we know what God should be like. It's not just that we want to make the decision, but we know that it is unjust, unfair, and immoral for God to make distinctions. God, by making distinctions, becomes the oppressor in our progressive mindset. I mean, come on! It is your whole world that says that. It is everything you read, everything you're taught, everything you use as entertainment tells you that God has no right to determine the things that he has determined from all eternity. Now, I suspect that you're willing to go along with God choosing some and not choosing others, right? I think that after the weeks we've had of me preaching on predestination and election, you're basically, you know, well, okay, that's weird, but I guess I'm on board, right? But let me ask you a question. What about if God doesn't choose your son? Do you know that I read three dead guys in preparing to preach today? I read the Scott Haldane. I read Westminster's, no, no, Princeton's Hodge, and I read Calvin, okay? And do you know that none of the three of them ever mentioned the family, but all three of them again and again and again and again say, this passage we read today teaches us that God does not elect nations and groups and churches. This passage teaches us that God elects individuals. 
but none of them said anything about God doesn't elect families. Now, why do you think they never mention families? I don't know, but I suspect that part of it was that nobody ever wants to tell a mama that God's election doesn't follow that mama's heart. Are you with me? That's, that's like, that's pretty difficult. And yet, if mothers of this church are tempted to judge God, that's precisely where they'll be tempted. To deny the goodness of God at the point of the fruit of their womb. Okay. And yet you know that if Hodge and Calvin and Haldane are all agreed that this text teaches us that God elects individuals and not groups, not a race, He doesn't choose most of the Jews, and he does choose Gentiles. The whole point of saying that is that God's election does not run in conformity with race, right? With nation. If God chooses individuals in every family, just like Jacob and Esau, there will be some who are chosen and others who are not. And I believe that today when there is such despising of the family and marriage and the bearing of children in our Western culture, that we're in great danger of displacing the church with the family. Okay? And I keep warning you about this. I keep trying to warn you. Jesus did not say you have to hate your wife and your mother, because he was just being hyperbolic. It was not an exaggeration. The fact is, again and again and again, our hearts are going to be tested in their love for God as God divides our families. Okay? You will see it. I was reminded recently of a family that used to come to our church in the the, the grandma and the grandpa came, and the son and the daughter came, and the old girlfriend of one of the sons came, and, and, and the grandchildren came, and the whole clan was in the church. And then all of a sudden, what happened was, the grandson confessed to the elders of this church that he desired men and not women. And he committed a crime in the pursuit of his lust. And everybody knew about it because the parents had announced it to the whole church. And all of a sudden, we've got this stinking mess at the center of our church where the parents have announced the crime, but they didn't know their son had committed it and they didn't know why. And then all of a sudden it came out 
that it was their son. And here's why. And guess what happened? I mean, does anybody need to be told? Any of you wondering what happened? (laughs) Bam! The entire clan was gone. And in my years at my former church, there was only one person who was more encouraging to me constantly in being strong, in, in, in standing for God's truth than the matriarch of that family. And yet the minute there was a threat to that clan, that matriarch was gone. Okay? As a matter of fact, what, the narrative that was said was the elders have put this thought into his mind. He had said it to his private when he said, would you please get some pastoral care? And that suggestion of pastoral care was so anathema to them that they said, he's not gay. You put that in his mind. You're making him gay. You know, all we're trying to do is privately, you know, help him to be careful, right? He's a young man. He was probably 19 at the time. You know, we loved him. God chooses who is a man and who is a woman. And it is an assignment that you are to obey. And he doesn't care whether you like it or not. And I'm not saying God is not loving and compassionate. He'll help you fight your desire to abdicate your leadership of your home, which is to be gay, as I keep saying. In other words, a man who doesn't want to be the head of his wife and doesn't want to lead his children is gay, right? You understand what I'm saying. It's not that he wants to have sex with other men. It's that he doesn't want to have leadership like a man. And that's gay. I mean, you have to think about the nature of us not wanting to be male and female. The woman who... Well, never mind. I better not talk about women because you'll get mad. (laughs) God decides who's a male and female. God decides who's a Jew and Gentile. God decides who is animal and who is man. And God decides to whom he will give faith to. And that is... The explanation of your eternity. That is the explanation of your eternity. The explanation of your eternity is not that you're a good person, because you're not. Okay? You're not. You are not good at all. And, and think about it. If the explanation of your eternity was based on you being good, why is the Apostle Paul so defensive for so long in the middle of Romans? <laughs> you understand. In other words, if the explanation of eternity is that God chooses to reward those who are good and not to reward those who are bad, what's the scandal? Why is he like working so hard to stay ahead of our anger? Right? You get it? 
It makes no sense. No, the scandal is that God chooses. Isn't that something? And so the question you have to ask yourself is whether you are willing for God to make the distinctions or whether you demand that man makes the distinctions. Because you know this world is filled with distinctions. (laughs) What is cancel culture? (laughs) You know, it's man making distinctions. And so what do you think? You're going to give God the privilege of his authority? (laughs) but it's not your dad here I'm not asking you whether you're going to give your dad the privilege of his authority because your dad might very well back down and then your your mother will have to give him spine but God doesn't need anybody to give him spine God chooses whom he will now What the Apostle Paul does at this point is he quotes from Hosea, okay? And he shows that in the Old Testament, this was clear. All right? And so here's what he says. Go to the next one, would you please? As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And do you realize that this is true of all of us here this morning who have faith? We were not beloved and we were not his people. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians, there's an extended description of this. And here is what it says in the book of Ephesians about us. It says in Ephesians 2.1, you and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, speaking to you, you were among them, we too, some of us, Among them, we too, most of us, among them, we too, those of us at least that didn't grow up in Christian homes. But that's not what it says. It says, among them, we too, all, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. One of the reasons that I loved Augustine's confessions was he discussed dreams. And in his discussion of dreams, he discussed whether or not we're morally culpable for our dreams. Do you ever have dreams of the lusts of your flesh? Do you ever have dreams of wickedness that make you tremble when you wake up and remember them? Do your dreams of wickedness ever make you wake up and tremble? 
We're not that far removed from what we all were when God reached down and lifted us up out of the hole. And sometimes God sends to us reminders of what we are. Last night I got one. Oh, it was awful. It would be no scandal to this world if God set heaven and hell up as the place where the good people and the bad people go. But the fact is, what makes us good is the foreign righteousness of Jesus. So, you know how I said it begins, this section, with a description of the Jews not being saved in Paul's grief. And now you can see it's ending with the people that aren't God's people being called the people, the sons of God, the people that aren't loved being beloved. So it's the great reversal. You see it? Okay? It's a great reversal. But you know where we're headed in Romans, any of you? The big picture in Romans is not even the Jews and the Gentiles. This is the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament is a constant defense of God's reputation and God's decrees in not choosing the Jews and choosing the Gentiles. So you look at the book of Galatians, what is it? It's dealing with the scandal that they're saying, no, they need to become Jews. They need to circumcise themselves. They need to get circumcised. They're going to be real Christians, you know? And so you're, and Paul was the apostle of whom? The Gentiles. That's what he called the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And so you have this theme of identity politics all through the New Testament. And every time you read about the Judaizers and circumcision and the law and, and my people and, and, and Israel is not all Israel— you may have to substitute black and white. You may have to substitute Asian and Caucasian. You may have to substitute what really I have said often is the center of identity politics in Bloomington. Okay? And it ain't race. <laughs> it's class. And it's education. Because in America, class is education and education is class. And so the east side doesn't like the west side. You all know this, right? I mean, we let the Rasmussens come to church. <laughs> now, I have to say, that was a joke. It's just a joke. We have, how many people here have a master's degree or higher? Raise your hand. So Eric, don't feel alone. Okay, a lot of these people have repented and moved to the west side. <laughs> so in the first service, I was explaining that when we wanted to get rich this week, we went to Hyde Park. <laughs> you know, we bought a snowblower because, you know, Josh Bailey had told us how much money he was making blowing snow. So we got a snowblower. We drove to the east side. We drove to Hyde Park and made a lot of money. All right. And at lunch, I was sitting with Samuel at Five Guys, you know, eating hamburgers. Samuel was content with one. Nathan, four? How many did you have? (laughs) (laughs) 
he sat there and he was done long before Nathan and I were. And I looked at him and he, he had such a mournful hangdog look. You know, I said, are you still hungry? No, 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 I'm okay. But I've learned. And I said, if I bought you another hamburger, would you eat it? I learned that from John Crumb living in our home, you know. <laughs> you couldn't ask him if he was satiated. You had to ask him whether he would eat more if you put it in front of him. And of course, Nathan then said yes. So then I looked at Samuel and I said, Samuel, do you know that your father hated the east side? And he actually said yes. I didn't think he would know that, but apparently it was common knowledge in your family, you know. But I was shocked one day when I'm on the phone with Adam and Adam says, oh, I haven't been to the east side for two or three years. That's what he said. And I'm thinking that means more than the words that were just said. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I hate the east side. He said, I will do anything I can to avoid ever going to the east side of Bloomington. Now, listen. You read about the Judaizers in Galatians. And it, you don't have any skin in that game because there aren't any people here telling you to get circumcised. And so you just read Galatians and you think, well, isn't that cute? But if I tell you that the East Side has an average educational level of like a master's degree, an average income of 120000 and the minute you get across South Walnut, all of a sudden... They haven't graduated from high school and they're selling crystal meth. Or used to. I don't know what they're selling now. Maybe vaccinations. <laughs> this is the division that matters among the people of God today. It's class and it's education in Bloomington. And let me ask you the question. You know how progressive the left is. You know how conceited the east side of Bloomington is. You know how moral they consider themselves to be, right? But let me ask you, do you think that the east side is more accepting of people different than them, than the west side is? All right, maybe. But do you think either the East or the West Side is more accepting of people that are different than them than the Church of Jesus Christ? You may be cynical and tempted to say no, but I tell you throughout my lifetime, what I have seen is that the great glory of the people of God is that they are truly inclusive. Because they have watched their whole life, God, choose some that never in a million years would they have chosen for the kingdom of God. And you know who I used in the first service as an illustration? I used Scott. He was sitting here. So I've already said it to his face. Where on earth... Did anybody think that Scott would be a good addition to the Church of Jesus Christ? I mean, do any of you know Scott? I mean, the dude. Do you know Scott sends me these little pictures in an email of his children? And he doesn't say anything other than, well, yesterday for his birthday or something. And here's Scott just 
just gloriously happy about the children that God gave him and sending pictures of his children to his pastor. Please don't any of the rest of you do this. (laughs) I'd have 250 pictures every week, you know, that I'd have to write back and say, he's cute, (laughs) you know. There's a guy I got reconnected with, and I won't tell you his name. And you know, this man, it's unbelievable. Back in my dope smoking days, I rented a house in Glen Allen at Five Corners. And this guy had no place to live. So I told him he could live with us. And do you know what he would spend his days doing, literally? He would spend his days with a washcloth over his nose and his mouth sniffing airplane glue. Getting high off airplane glue, model glue. And this man has had a hard life and I see the fruit of the spirit in this man. And I could tell you over my lifetime again and again, I remember Danny Jared. He thought he was Rambo. He'd come with a bandana around his head and he was bad to the bone. He was just a punk. Disgusting punk. He wasn't even... Never mind. And then he, at 16, he badmouthed his mother in the milk parlor one day while they were doing chores. His father, who was about five inches shorter than he was, said to him, Danny, come here. His father had recently come to the Lord. He said, you won't talk to your mother that way. Lean over. And he told me this the next Sunday. And I said, Don, weren't you afraid? He said, yeah, I was praying. So Danny leaned over (coughs) and Don whooped him with his belt. At 16, bad to the bone, Rambo. And do you know something that from that day on, Danny became a man of God? It really was that stark, that quick, that clear. And he's still a man of God. Married to a wonderful Mennonite woman, lots of kids. When their mother and father died recently, finally their dad died at 90-something out there in Kansas, 16 or 14, I can't remember how many children, and all the brothers got together and dug the grave. That's what they do. We're not going to do that here after Adam, but I just want to warn you. (laughs) And this is Danny. And I ask you, you look at the families where a child has come to faith in the Lord, and I guarantee you again and again and again, what you're going to tell me is that it's the child who came to the Lord that nobody thought would ever amount to anything good. I could go through here and show this to you. I could tell you the stories of some of you And your hair would stand up on end. This is God's choice. And do you think that you can make the choices better than God does? How does God get glory? Does God get glory from a child who is always, from the moment they were born, compliant? Sweet! 
No, Cynthia. Not you, Bailey. I'd say Allison. No. God gets glory from nasty Abe. Because who would ever choose Abe? We'd choose Cynthia, right? <laughs> you know, we'd choose Jonathan, not Josiah. Now, I want to tell you something and we'll be done. Remember I said, you've got Romans 9. At the beginning, it's about the Jews and the Gentiles. At the end, it's about the Jews and Gentiles. The great reversal that God saves the Gentiles and pushes away the Jews, right? And so now, you know, I'm talking about the fact that God loves doing this great reversal and that often in families, the kids that end up having the strongest faith are the ones that it's so obvious they have faith because God gave it to them, okay? Because naturally, they're not likable. I mean, I don't know what to say about you, Abe. I mean, you know, I like you, you know. Some of my best friends are Abe. It's a joke. But listen, where we're about to go in the book of Romans is more scandalous than the doctrine of predestination and election. Where we're about to go is to the doctrine that the Jews would not come to God. They would not, they refused. And why did they refuse? They refused because they were adamant that God would choose them because they're the clean ones and they're the good ones. And the scandal of the gospel that buries the scandal of predestination is that it is of free grace. And God is unimpressed by your morality. You will never enter heaven because you are good. Never. You will have to be good to enter heaven. But the goodness will be the goodness of Jesus. And your goodness will be being unashamed of your identity being in Jesus. And that's humbling. I know you don't think of it as being humbling. It's really humbling to say, well, what in your hand do you bring? And you say, simply to Christ I cling. I mean, it sounds like a nursery rhyme, you know, like pat the bunny, you know. And, and nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. It's stupid. They would never teach that in the sociology class. And that's the rock that destroyed the Jews. They would not humble themselves to free grace. And so God passed them over. Do you understand this? And so if you're interested in being the one that makes the distinctions and makes the choices, okay, you with me? If what you think is that you do a better job than God and that God really should not be making distinctions and choices, your choices are going to be on the basis of morality. 
Okay? And I want you to know that's what the entire world is doing right now in every area of life. They're making the distinctions sexually. They're making the distinctions class, education, money, race, all this stuff. And it's fascinating. I was trying to think of how to preach this this morning. And I got into the issue of black and white and the fact that it's the oppressor that says we and us and that the oppressed, the minority, says, no, you can't include me, we, and us. That's not right. I'm not going to go fight the North, right? Remember the illustration. But the funny thing is that we also say to the black man, if you tell us we are not allowed to have cornrows, you know, because it's what? Racial appropriation. Then all of a sudden, we allow the oppressed to exclude the oppressor from some aspect of their culture that they're precious about. And so we are so bound up in trying to be moral about race. It's so complicated. Until your judgments are based on God. And all the cobwebs get cleared out. And you realize there's only two classes of people in this world. There are those who have nothing in their hands but Jesus. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. And there are those who come just absolutely weighed down with so many things that they are going to impress God with. And there's no hope for them, none whatsoever. They will go before God, the great judge, with their self-righteousness. And it's filthy rags. And then there are those that will go to God and say, you know, (laughs) my name is Abe. And I used to give my mother and my sisters and my brothers a run for their money. And if there was a good seat in the car, I took it. And if there was a good snow shovel, I took it. You know, but you know, God grabbed me, and I am so sorry for what a selfish pig I am. And so now I want to explain to other people that I know what it is to be a selfish pig, but I know that God died for selfish pigs, and that's the gospel, right? That's identity politics that matter. That I'm a sinner and that God has chosen me. How do I know? Because he gave me faith that a sinner like me could be saved. Our Father, we thank you for Abe and for Scott and for Dwayne and for Tim Bailey who are wonderful public testimonies to the fact that the greatest sinners bring you glory. And Father, I pray for those here this morning that think that they're good, that you will disengage them from the lie. I pray, Father, that we'll live in such a way that we extend hope to those who are hopeless and who are lost in sin, that Grace is free, 
and that they may come to Jesus with nothing to commend themselves except faith. Give us faith, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.